when we think about what it means to be clean, how can we be clean? How can our sins really be removed? And if we can just get as practical as possible, the concept of a scapegoat. Do you battle guilt? Do you ever battle feeling like you're just not good enough? Just God just can't completely forgive you. You just can't completely forgive yourself. You ever wrestle with it? I, I just don't know. I mean, I know Jesus' death is forgiveness. I know I've confessed. I've asked Jesus to forgive me. I just don't. I just don't believe that Jesus can really forgive me. Or I don't feel forgiven. I maybe intellectually, I might think that, okay, he can do it intellectually, theoretically. I understand that's possible, but, but I just don't feel forgiven. Those questions are answered in this passage in, in uh, this imagery that they would go through every year lays out for us a pattern for how God provides forgiveness. So Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. So they came in to the tabernacle and they thought that they can bring some fire that they was not from the altar. They brought their own incense they mixed up and they just kind of wandered into the tent as if anybody can go in anytime they wanted. And they decided they'd do things on their own way. And God made it clear to them really quickly that you can't come on your own terms into my presence and live to talk about it. Uh, so significant was this that they even have bells on the, the bottom of the garment of the high priest so that when the bells stopped jingling, you knew that he, something's prob- there's a problem. Sometimes they would tie a rope to the foot of the high priest to drag him out of the Holy of Holies in case he was to be struck down by God and he was, he was to die in there. They, they, they didn't want to run in after him so they, would, they could drag him out. That's how significant this was. So he says, hey, remember how your sons came before me and they drew near to me and they died. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, that's his, Aaron's the high priest. He's been sanctified, set apart as the high priest. Your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place, the holy of holies, inside the veil before the mercy seat in uh, that is on the ark so that he may not die. Now, in the tent, you have the holy place, which is the, the majority of the space on the front. So probably three-fourths of this tent was the holy place. And in the holy place is a lampstand, is a table of bread. Um, is the golden altar, that, which is about a two-foot-high altar of incense where they would burn incense, and that incense would, would smoke, that smoke would be lifted up, and it was pictures of the prayers of the saints being lifted up to God. And then, you, of course, you have the brazen altar outside here. We'll come back to that a little later. There's another picture of these things. And then uh, the Ark of the Covenant. We haven't talked a lot about this, but the Ark of the Covenant was a box that was covered in gold, and inside the box was the Ten Commandments. Several other things were in there also. There was a jar of manna. There was manna. There was the Aaron's rod that budded. That was later. Uh, several things were placed in there. But the main thing in, in that box, the most significant thing, is the Ten Commandments. That's in the box. And then you have these two seraphim, these angels on top that are looking down. And it's as if they're looking not to the lid, but through the lid. And if you could see through the lid, you would see the law of God. You'd see the Ten Commandments there inside the box. And so this held that. And it was also called, sometimes we find it referred to, as we did here, the mercy seat of God. And so it's as if it's the throne in which God rests in. His presence sits, manifests 
on it. Now, God's spirit doesn't have a body like man, so he doesn't need quite the same throne that we would need. So uh, ergonomically, it might not picture what you would think as a seat, okay? But that's the place where God rested his presence, manifested by smoke or fire. He would manifest his presence, rest his presence on the mercy seat, which is the top of the lid of the ark. There was poles that went through similar to the poles that we have on the brazen altar here, and they were strictly told that they are never to touch the Ark of the Covenant, okay? Um, They're not to touch the box. They only touch the poles. There's a time where somebody touched the Ark because it was on a a wagon it wasn't supposed to be on because they were told to put poles through and carry it with the poles and started to toddle, and somebody touched it, and God struck him dead. His name was Uzzah. And so God killed Uzzah because of that. So as these poles going through, here's the, here's the Ark of the Covenant, and that's what he's referring to there. So he says, Tell Aaron, if any time he comes in the holy place inside the veil, there's a veil that separates where God's presence resides from the holy place where they would do the other ministry, the priest would minister. And so only the high priest can come in. And if he comes in, he's going to make it real specific. Here's how he comes in. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering. And a ram, rams were very costly, for a burnt offering. And he shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments he shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. So uh, if you were to go back probably four weeks, we talked about, and I actually showed some images of the priestly garments and what the priest would wear, very specific, different things that the priest, the high priest was to wear. It was an incredibly expensive, beautiful, elaborate, extravagant um, outfit and robe that the priest wore, and there was many layers to it. So the bottom layers were, were ultimately his undergarments, and then there was the, the linen layer. And then on top of the linen layer, there was the ephod, and uh, was a beautiful tapestry that was woven. And then he had a chest plate on there that had 12 stones, each representing one of the tribes. And then on his shoulders, he had two lists of the tribes. And so he carries with him into the presence of God the, the names of the nation, of each of the tribes of, of Israel. So they're on his shoulders, and they're close to his heart as he goes in to to intercede on their behalf. But the first time he goes in, all that stuff is laid aside and he goes in not with the extravagancies and the glory of all his uh, garments, but he goes in with the simplicity and purity of his linen garments. Having bathed himself, he goes in first to make sacrifice for himself with a sin offering and a burnt offering. And then verse five, he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull of the, as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. And then verse 7, he goes into a little more detail about these goats. Then he shall take the two goats and set, bef- set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two go- goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And so Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for uh, Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord and to make atonement over it, and it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Azazel, actually, Azazel, I think. 
uh, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. So emphasis on he's making this. He was told to do this. And then he's saying this is what he's this is what he's going to do. He's making it very clear. So he's going to have to come in. He has to sacrifice on behalf of himself. So now he gets it down a little further. He's saying, again, he's going to bring this in. He's going to make a sin offering for himself and for his family. And then verse 12, this is a beautiful image here. And he shall take a censer full of coals, coals for a fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before on the fire before the Lord and the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. So the first thing he does in the process of this is he's going to get a little um, metal pan, you know, facing up and he's going to put some hot coals from that altar inside and he's going to place some specific incense on it and he's going to slide that in. He's going to lift, pull back the veil and he's going to put that in the presence of God. And so there's going to be altar, there's going to be incense that's coming up in the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is that's going to be there. And that, that's, that's the image he's giving. In verse 14, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times he's going to dip his finger in the blood and he's going to sprinkle it on the altar seven times now there's other times where on for sin offerings and other offerings they would come in and he would go to the veil and he would sprinkle blood on the veil or on the floor in front of the veil but this is the one time a year he pushes the veil back he goes into the veil and he's going to sprinkle the blood seven times on the altar on top of the ark of the covenant uh more specifically and verse 16 thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of israel and because of their transgressions and all of their sins and so uh, for, sorry let me back up a little bit verse 15 he shall then kill the goat. So I talked about the sprinkling the bull's blood for his own sins. Then he comes and he kills the goat, the offering that is for the people to bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and on front of the mercy seat. Thus, he shall make atonement. Remember, atonement means covering. He's going to make a covering over their sins for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel because of their transgressions, all their sins. So this sacrifice is on behalf of the whole nation. Now, again, you might feel like, well, that's his deal. He's doing that on behalf of them. And our tendency is to kind of what you do for you is, is fine for you. But what I do for me is for me. But they didn't have the mindset that we have as individualistic um, narcissistic Americans where each of us are our own God and our own universe and our own galaxy and we are the center and everything revolves around us they thought of everything in the sense of community and so they realized that their sins affected one another and this high priest is in there on their behalf he's in there on their behalf to get god to forgive their sins and so whether or not they'll be forgiven whether or not they'll be their guilt will be removed is they're entrusting that high responsibility to the high priest who's in there ministering on their behalf now i can assure you they did not go along business as usual about their day. This was a day set aside, a holy day. They're outside surrounding the, the um, 
outer court of the tabernacle, many of them on their faces and on their knees before God, praying that God would accept the sacrifice of the high priest and that the high priest, also a sinful person like them, that God would first forgive him and accept his offering for himself so that he can minister on behalf of them as he goes into the altar and that they're they're not going to get something wrong and hold a knife wrong or spill the blood or do something or mess something up. They're just praying that everything goes as prescribed and that he does not get struck down like his sons got struck down when they did things wrong. This is intense moment. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for the house and all the assembly of Israel. So everybody's outside. The high priest alone is in there on their behalf. Last part of this that I'm going to read for now, and then uh, I'm going to explain this more in depth. Verse 18. Then he shall go out on the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the people of Israel. That ministering on behalf of a sinful nation is a really dirty business. And so, I mean, this is year, day after day after day after week after month. There's sins of the people being accumulated, and they're doing sacrifice on their behalf and all of this different stuff. But then once a year, you've got to pause. You've got to clean house. We've got to get everything clean and purified. And then he comes to the brazen altar, and he puts blood on each of the horns. Blood from the bull, blood from the goat. Blood from the bull, blood from the goat. Blood from the bull, but on behalf of his sins, the high priest, on behalf of the sins of the nation. He does that. Then he, uh, he, he is going to anoint each of the different parts of the temple that are used for the worship and sacrifices of the people to atone for their sins daily before God. And then he sprinkles blood on the side of it. So he's consecrating and purifying it for the sacrifices for the year that, that's coming. If, it's not, if God doesn't accept this, if it doesn't work, then, then all the other stuff is, is fruitless. There's no point in doing it because they're, they're the foundation, it's, they're making sacrifices to be pure on something that is impure and, and God's not going to accept it. Verse 19, he shall sprinkle some of the blood on, its, uh, on his finger seven times and cleanse it, consecrate it for the uncleanliness of the people. And then verse 20, when he has made an end of the toning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. I could picture for you the image I had up there a moment ago. And Aaron shall slay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all of their transgressions and all of their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. And then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting. He shall take off the linen garments. He shall put on when he went into the holy place and leave them there. He shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and his burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people and the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he lets the goat go to Azazel, 
shall the one who, who takes the goat out to and, and the scapegoat out and lets him go, he also has to come in and cleanse himself because he's taken the sins of the people with him on this goat. And so that's kind of a dirty business. And so when he comes back in, he also has to be cleansed and sanctified and uh, in the process. And then that's the end. And the verse, this chapter ends by saying, this is a statute. You're going to do this annually. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. And you need to make atonement for all your sins. And this is a holy, holy day and a statute before you. Verse 34, that be made, this statute forever should be done for you, that atonement be made for the people of Israel once in the year, once in the year because of all of their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. So you say, wow, wow, wow. What is all that? How does that have anything to do with me? Well, in the time of Jesus, these sacrifices were still happening. And what would happen is the priest would go, and the week before, he was set apart. A week before, he was, the high priest was set apart and was to be tested and, uh, and purified. It was, a, it was a week of preparation, getting ready, because, again, this is, this is huge. This is big. This is the Day of Atonement. This is Yom Kippur. This is the day that, that sacrifices are made, and everything else is going to be on the foundation of this sacrifice, whether it's received. And so he's set apart, and they would test him. They would grill him. They would ask him moral questions and questions about his sin, his thought life, and different. They wanted to make sure that, that he's confessed all of his sin. And then we, we fast forward after this time of testing and preparation. We get to the day before. The day before he fasts, before he's going to serve on behalf of the nation. He fasts for that day. And again, it's another day of isolation and being set apart, and everything's getting ready. He stays up all night. The night before the sacrifices are going to be made, he stays up the whole night. Again, uh, you know, having fasted or fasting while he's doing this, and he recites Leviticus chapter um, 16 and other passages that are, that are relevant that give some instructions and insights on how to do this. And he goes over it again and again and again. He's being reminded of what he's going to do. He's being tested. He's being set apart. Other priests are going, uh, some of the other, not the high priest, but other priests are going, and they're cleaning off the altar from the sacrifice for the night before so that the next morning that it will be completely clean and all of the ashes will be removed and play, taken to a holy place outside the camp and then it'll be ready to go for it to be consecrated and for them to begin another year of, of sacrifices. So all that's happening. And so through the night, he's reciting these things. He's starting to get sleepy. His sugar's getting low. He's, he's, he wants to go to bed. He wants to sleep. His body's getting fatigued. He's getting, and, and he's starting to doze off. And what would happen is the, the, the other priests around him, the younger priests, would go, Sir High Priest. They would snap. Sir High Priest. Sir High Priest to wake him up. And then he, then he would start to wake up, and they would start going over again. Remember in Leviticus 16, verse 4, and he would start to recite that, and he would continue. And they were trying to keep him going, reciting, to keep him up all night, going over what it's going to happen in the morning, making sure everything's... This is a holy night of prayer and preparation for the sacrifices that are going to take a place. And, and so it's, it was known. He would fall asleep. They'd get sleepy, and the, the other priests would keep him awake. And then the morning comes, and he begins. Again, a burnt offering would start the day. And then he begins the process of cleansing himself and all of these things that we just read for you. A couple things to note in the preparation for the priest. Also, that he had to be alone. At the beginning, it says that he's in there sacrificing on their behalf alone. Nobody can come with him. Nobody can help him. Nobody can prop him up. He's on his own. Once the sacrifices begin, he's on his own. And he, everything he's doing, he has to do exactly as prescribed by God. Nobody's walking with him with a checklist. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you did that. You did the bull. Let's see, you sacrificed... Okay, you held the knife, you got the bowl. All right, you got to stir it now. Stir the blood so it doesn't congeal. Make sure you're doing, did you doing that? You forgot to stir the blood. There's no correction. He's got all this stuff's in his head. He has to do this perfectly. 
And so he's set aside. He laid aside the glorious garments. He lays aside the normal things he would wear that, that pictured the glory of this position and the glory of God. He lays those aside in humility and purity. He comes before uh, God in the midst of these sacrifices. He had to be cleansed and washed and purified. And he had to offer a sin offering for himself so that he would be in a position where he could sacrifice on behalf of the nation. So he has to sacrifice for himself before he sacrifices for the people. So that's some of the images there. And then when you look at the presentation of the goats brought before, one was for the Lord. Several things imaged in that. You have, it, it's a representation of their sins. It's a representation, it's an unblemished goat. It's a representation of the purity of the animal and its purity being given to the nation and, and the sin of the people on that goat. It's a substitute. It's this goat is going to die on behalf of or in the place of those who are sinful and guilty. And again, to remind you, Leviticus 17 says the life of the animal is in its blood. The reason we're, the, the animals are being killed in this process is because of the image of the life of an individual is in their blood. And God is saying, because of your sin, you must die. And if you're going to be forgiven, then, then blood has to be, a life has to be given for your life. And the way that a life is given, the way that that picture is made, is by the life of another, uh, an animal. A pure, unblemished animal can be traded on behalf of your sins. But then we're told later in the Old Testament, certainly in the New Testament, that the blood of bulls and goats never could sufficiently cleanse us or clear our conscience. And so it was simply a shadow and a picture of which is going to eventually be fulfilled in Christ, as we'll see in a moment. Not only was it a representation of substitution, also satisfaction. God would be, his wrath was satisfied for a year. God would hopefully receive it and forgive them, and they could continue for the next year in their worship of God. And their sacrifices would be accepted. And then also it was a redemption. It was, God was redeeming, uh, they were able to redeem themselves to, to pay off their sins before God. They were set free. They were no longer enslaved to sin. And so redemption is a, is a picture of being, uh, your sins being paid for and taken away. And the other part of this, uh, there is confession. They would place the hands on the, on the goat that was also sacrificed and confess their sins. You ever confess your sins? You ever sit down and say, okay, God, I, I should have done this. I should have done it. And, and confess your sins. They would literally do that. And this was prescribed for many of the offerings when an animal was killed in their place they, they confessed their sins and picturing transference was one of the words to remember transference their sins are being transferred onto this animal and then the animal's unblemished right un, you know the unblemished pure state was being transferred onto them and so there's there's confession there's transference there's substitution all those are elements of what is happening as that animal is going to, its life will be taken and then it will be sacrificed. And so as the events of the day are unfolding, the priest switching between golden garments to linen garments, cleansing, washing, back to other garments, washing, back to the other, going back and forth, doing all these different things, going through these sacrifices. He goes in, places the smoke before, the incense before the altar, sacrifices on behalf of his own sin, walking into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God is, seven times sprinkling the blood of the bull then goes out and then he returns back in with the blood of the goat one of the things i didn't mention earlier is that when they had those two goats and they would you know roll some dice or something cast lots and they would determine which one was going to be for the lord and which one was for azazel and so the one for the lord was taken and laid aside and the other one they would take a crimson 
thread or, or string or rope, tie it on the horns of the one set aside for Azazel. The one sacrificed, uh, they would bring aside, they would sacrifice it. And when they were going to take the Azazel uh, sacrifice out into the wilderness, they would take that off and they would place that onto the front of the temple. And this is recorded not in the Old Testament. This is extra biblical literature, but in some of the traditions and historical writings, they would say that every year uh, when the sacrifice was made, they'd always take that, that crimson cord and they would take it and they would tie it to the front of the tabernacle or the temple. And they would leave it there when they took the um, goat out into the wilderness. But that was the way they marked and distinguished which one was for the Lord and which one was, was going to be the scapegoat and taken away. And then when we look at the high priest, there's some incredibly beautiful things. This is where I want to turn the corner and begin to think about how does this give us a more vivid image of Christ? How do we understand Jesus more clearly? Well, Jesus is the greater high priest. Well, why would we say that? Well, let's look at Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7, 8, 9. All of those are picturing where uh, the book of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the high priest, the earthly high priest. Jesus is of a different line. <clears throat> Jesus is set apart. He is far greater, and, and he's going to explain to them why that is true in Hebrews. And you can't even begin to appreciate that until you understand the significance of the role of the high priest. The high priest had to be a son of or descendant of Aaron. Aaron was the first one, had to have a direct bloodline to Aaron. And so the problem with Aaron and his bloodline is they're all born in their sin. They all have a sin nature, but Jesus is not from their bloodline. We say, well, how could he be the high priest? He's from a different bloodline. Jesus, his position as a high priest is attached to another high priest we find one time in the bible this guy shows up and it's before all of this mosaic law stuff he shows up in genesis with abraham if you go back all the way to genesis there's a time where abraham goes and uh, he goes and, and conquers a group had taken away lot his nephew and the and so this group comes and and carries them away. And so Abraham goes after them to, to free Lot, and he brings them back. And on his way back, he goes and, he's, and he gives an offering to Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who, who's that guy? Melchizedek, we don't know much about him. We don't know where he came from. We don't know where he went. It's as if he always was, and he always will be. It's like, we don't know his bloodline. We don't know where he came from. Some people think that Melchizedek was, was a... a uh, a theophany or a Christophany. It was an actually an Old Testament appearance of Christ that Melchizedek really was Christ. So whether Melchizedek was Christ or whether Melchizedek was a type of Christ, we don't know. But we do know that Jesus, his role as a high priest is attached to the concept or the idea of this one Melchizedek who we don't know his past. and We don't know. It's like he just appears and he is a priest before the Lord forever. That's what he's described as. And so Melchizedek is referenced in chapter 7. And it says in verse 17, For it is attested of him, Jesus, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then if you drop down to verse 23 of chapter 7, it says the former priests on one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. The other problem with the high priest is they, you don't, Aaron wasn't there for 1,500 years. Aaron died, and they had to get another high priest. And then he died, and they had to get another high priest. And then he died. 
And they had to get another one. So you never have a consistent person serving on your behalf, representing you to God. There's always another one. He's always sinful. He always has to sacrifice on behalf of his own sins. He's always, there's not a lot of confidence long-term in this plan. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who did not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself for the law appointed men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law points a son made perfect forever. That's Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 1. The the synopsis in your brain should be going berserk right now. I mean, they should just be flashing and flaming and getting crazy right now. If you're thinking about this, based on the enlightened by what we've been learning in Leviticus, this is some really good stuff. So chapter 8, verse 1. You ready? Are you ready? The main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens and ministered a, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle. Wait, wait, there's a different tabernacle? Yeah, there's a true tabernacle. There's a true one. In the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. God set it up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve as a copy. This is where I want you to to lean in. A copy in a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for, see, he says, God, that you make all the things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Have you ever wondered what it looks like in heaven? Have you ever wondered what it's going to be like? And have you ever wondered, I wonder what it looks like. I wonder what God's throne's like. I wonder what things look like. I wonder what it's set up like in heaven. Have you ever wondered that? Well, if you want to understand that, I, I can give you a shadow and you can't see it very clearly. But when you look at the tabernacle and you look at the temple, that's a picture, a shadow, a hint of earthly things that are a picture of heavenly realities. They're, they're a picture of something in heaven. And so Jesus came to earth God graciously appointed a religious system so we could understand how to relate to him through earthly high priests who were sinful, messed up, and had problems just like you and I. And they did all this stuff and all these things, whatever, that really never could forgive people. But they did do something amazing and beautiful. They gave for us an expression of something that we couldn't wrap our minds around. Something that if God was to open an expose for us. If we were able to have a vision of heaven, I don't even know we could begin to appreciate it. I think our brains would explode. And yet, he's given us an earthly example. So, okay, I, I'm, there's a future for you. There's an inheritance, undefiled, unper- imperishable, uh, unfading that, that, that I have for you, that I've secured for you. But so you can even begin to appreciate it. I'm going to give you something on earth so you can kind of play with it a little bit. 
Okay, it's a little gift, and it's going to be fun, and you're going to have a good time. It's going to be great, killing a bunch of animals and setting it up, and it's going to be. It, but it's it's not the thing. It's just it's just a place for you to learn how to be ready so that you can, in eternity future, experience the thing. That's reality. And so this is just an earthly representation of that. These are beautiful images that are going to help you appreciate how you can know me, a holy, clean God, when you're an unclean people, and how you can make a way for us to have a, a, a friendship, a relationship through the blood of Jesus. In verse 4, if this first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second covenant. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with your fathers on the day which I took them by the hand, like a father leaving, leading a little child, to lead them out of the land of Egypt for they did not continue in my covenant and did not care for, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone, his fellow citizen, everyone, his brother, saying, know the Lord for all will be known. All will know me. And at least in the least is to be the greatest among them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And he said a new covenant. He has made his the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. In other words, he's saying, let us just move on. Let's just take the last shovel of dirt, throw it on top and let's move on. And actually, not long after this was written, the temple was actually destroyed. And to this day, it is not existent. The foundation is there. Temple is gone. So how is Jesus a higher priest, a better high priest for us? Well, in the person of Jesus, he has become, God has become both the just and the justifier. He has legally, lawfully, rightfully, wholly, righteously dealt with our sin, not by excusing it and looking the other way, but by paying fully for the price of our sin in himself. Jesus being the judge and getting off the judge bench and coming down and dying and paying the price in our place. He's both just and the justifier, according to Romans. Wow, that's huge. So he's a better high priest in that Jesus is the just and the justifier. Number two, he's permanent. He's the eternal high priest. He's not the temporal annual high priest or the next one or the one that was before the next one or the one after the last one. He is eternally the high priest. Number three, he is our sacrifice. He did not have to sacrifice for himself so he could minister on our behalf, but he became the sacrifice. He didn't kill a goat for us, a bull for us, a ram for us. He became the sacrifice. He died for us. Unbelievable. We look at significance of him as a high priest. Jesus has covered our sins. He's covered our sins. I mean, the, the, he goes into the temple and he goes into the or the tabernacle, goes into the holy place. He sprinkles the blood on the top of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. So when God from his holy throne looks down or rests his presence upon the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, when he looks down, he doesn't see his law as a reminder of his sinful people and all the things that they have done to break his beautiful holy law and the covenant that they have made between he and them. If you do these things, you're going to have great life. If you do these things, you're going to have a bad life. I've set before you life and death. Choose life so that you may live. 
And every year they chose directly, indirectly, in a great way or in a little way, they would end up messing up somewhere and they would choose death and death and death and death. And they would always break it. And he looks through the lid and he doesn't see his laws broken. He looks down and before he sees the laws, what does he see? He sees the blood. And so when he looks, there is a covering over our sins. And that is the blood of Christ. Jesus' blood is the grid in which God looks at your life. And I know you haven't arrived yet. And I know you've made mistakes. And I know you're struggling. And I know you're trying to live the Christian life. And you want to honor God with your life. There's a desire there. But you don't. You fail again and again and again. Understand you have been justified. And your sins have been covered. And the blood has been provided. And when God is looking at your your life, he's not looking at all the reasons why you just can't get it. You're so frustrated to me. You won't. Will you not just obey me? Can you not get it through your body? He's not that kind of God. You don't have to perform for him. You don't have to pretend that you're better than you really are. You just need to understand that when he looks at you, he looks at you through Christ's blood. He has sufficiently paid for your sins, and they are covered. Thirdly, he has removed our sins. And this is the last image I want to bring out for you. There's so much more to think about and to ponder in these Verses. The priest comes out, and the last part of this whole ceremony, he takes the cord off of the goat for Azazel, and he comes and he ties it off. He confesses the sins of the people. And then he takes a rope tied to the neck of the goat, places it in the hand of the guy that's going to lead him off into the wilderness, and he takes him away. And so they go out of the eastern gate of the tabernacle, and eventually it will be the temple. And he wanders off into the wilderness. Where does he take it? There's a lot of people who, that have debated for years, what is a goat for the Lord and a goat for Azazel? What is Azazel? And, and looking at the ancient language and trying to figure out. And there's three basic theories that have, that have uh, surfaced that are, are the prominent views of what Azazel is. And so just to, if I can make it as simple as, as possible, the three um, what, primary views. One is some have hypothesized that Azazel was a demon in the wilderness. And so he was taken and he was given as an offering to pay off this demon. The problem with that is the very next chapter is going to talk about how uh, you're not supposed to sacrifice on behalf of demons. And so um, that would not make sense to sacrifice on behalf of the Lord and then to sacrifice on behalf of a demon. doesn't make sense. But what is an interesting thought is if the sins of the people are confessed after the blood has been atoned for, blood from the other lamb has been, or goat has been sprinkled on this one, the sins confessed on this one, and then he's led out symbolically removing the sins as if what if he did take him to the edge of darkness, took him to the wilderness, which is often a picture of uh, the demonic realm. It's the places where the demons roam, whatever, as if to take the sins back to the devil and to say, okay, here you go. In case you're, you're wanting to hold these people accountable for their sins and all of their guilt and all the stuff they've done, I just want you to know it's been forgiven. Here's your goat back. And they'd push him off a cliff. The other possibility is that Azazel means um, rocky cliffs or jagged wilderness or uh, something like that. And so he was taken off into a place, just a location, geographical location. We're not really sure. Uh, we do know by traditions um, there, that it is implied that they would dispatch of the goat. Um, and, and for various reasons, he was, he, was, he was removed in such a way that he would not be able to come back because 
If you're taking all the sins of the people as he goes, goes and walks through this packed crowd on their faces, praying that God would forgive their sins, the sea would part and they would back really fast away as he walks with the sins of the nation through the crowds. And they watch him as he wanders down outside of the city, outside of the village, outside of the camp, and wanders off until they can see him no more. And how would it be if a couple days later the goat comes wandering back in? People would be like, they, they, it would not go well. And so they, he, would be, uh, he would not come back. And, and, and what is the significance? Let me give you a couple of verses to, to think about as we wrap up this morning. First of all, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, chapter 1, verse 29, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then we're told in 1 John 1, 9, if we would confess our sins, if we would just admit with God what we have done, God is faithful and he's just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We understand that in the same way that the goat was taken with the sins out of the eastern gate, out into the eastern wilderness, far to the east, with the temple far to the west, we're told in Psalms 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You need to understand, there is nothing the world will give you that will ever take the place of Christ. Temporary pleasures, temporary pursuits, temporary saviors, functional saviors will never satisfy, nor will they ever clean and clear your conscience. Will they ever remove your guilt? Will they ever take your sins and as far as the east is from the west, remove them from you forever? But God has provided such a sacrifice for us in Christ final verses i want to read for you hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 it says therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of jesus so well how do how do we apply this what does this do how does this relate to me i want some application conceptually you're saying there's forgiveness my guilt's been removed but practically speaking how does this help i this is it doesn't get any more practical than this since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus in the same way that the priest went into the holy place. We have confidence to go in through the blood of, with the blood of Jesus by a new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, which is torn, that is through his flesh. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts having been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies having been washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let's cling to the anchor of our faith. Let's hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let's 
consider how can we stir one another to love and to good deeds? How can we do that? In fact, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some people. Some people don't think the gathering's a big deal. Some people don't think community is a big deal. Some people don't think they need other believers, but we need it because if not, we won't be confident. We won't hold fast unwaveringly. We'll get distracted. We'll get discouraged. We'll begin to heap the guilt back on. We'll begin to let the devil come back to us and start pointing out to us the different sins. And we'll forget the fact that the goat has left the city and has been removed and he's been taken away and our sins are gone. We'll forget that if we're not reminded we need the fellowship of believers. And so we need to stir one another up to love and good works. Stuff we do out of an overflow of what Christ has done. Not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. All the more, all the more as we see the day drawing near. Is it getting better out there or is it getting worse? It's getting worse. We're all getting crazier, getting holier, getting crazier. We probably should see a little more importance to gathering, shouldn't we? We probably should know the word better, shouldn't we? We probably should remind each other of the sacrifice of the truth of the gospel, that you're not earning your righteousness. You're not paying God off. He has paid the price, and he has removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. If you're here this morning and you have never repented and trusted in Christ for your salvation, why not? What do you have to impress God with in your own self-righteousness? Or let me flip it. What have you done that is so bad that God cannot forgive you, that the sacrifice of Christ is insufficient to forgive your sins? I think he can handle it. If he can forgive the sins of the nation of Israel, I think you're all right. It's not the greatness or the smallness of your sins. It's the greatness of his sacrifice, which is sufficient. And by the way, the end of this is the reality that Jesus now, the high priest, is sitting down. No more sacrifices. No more goats to remove. No more blood to shed. It's done. He just sits, waits to come back to judge the earth as the Father will tell him to when the time is right. And he ministers on your behalf as your advocate before the Father. Reminding Father and any who will bring accusations against you that the goat has left the building. Let's pray. Father, we need your love. We need your forgiveness. We need your grace. You have vividly, beautifully given us earthly pictures that lest we get distracted by them are pictures of heavenly realities. And you have provided sacrifice for us that is sufficient to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we, with excitement, God, we are so thankful that you have taken the altar that we should fear because of the picture of your wrath, and you have made it a place of meeting, a place of gathering, a place of reconnection with you. And so we, with excitement, Father, we come before you with hearts ready to worship through song, through giving. God, if there's anyone here who does not know you, I pray that they would not leave this building without having surrendered their hearts to you. And Father, if there's anyone here that's been battling guilt, I pray that they would not be so foolish as to leave here 
carrying a weight that you have already removed, but they would confess their sins and know that you are faithful and just to cleanse, to forgive their sins and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. Jesus, we are thankful for you. We, are, we worship you, we praise you, and we are thankful for the cross.